Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Live from beautiful Snowbird Resort, just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Nerdtacular 2017 Video Games. What's the deal with those? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Video Games panel. Thank you all for being here. I hope you had a, a great lunch. And you're all full of whatever it is you ate, and you're ready to, to roll here with some video game talk and not too sleepy. Before we get any further, I would like to introduce our panel. I'm going to be here mostly just throwing questions at people. You already know me, but we have right next to me Mr. Mark the Terpster Turpin. Hello. You may still be wondering why, but next to him is my sister, Wendy Dunford. You'll find out soon. I mean, she's here because I'm always looking for an excuse to use her and more stuff anyway, but there's a very specific reason we're doing it today. She doesn't even know why yet, so anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. Russell Brower from Blizzard Entertainment, not officially... Not an officially, uh, uh, you know, thing where you're here speaking for the company at all, but we all know and love him from his work there, of course. And Disney, when you were there before. <laughs> you may remember this guy. It is Greg Street. Gross Crawler is what he went by. <laughs> he uh, did great things for World of Warcraft, is now over at Riot Games working on the world's most popular video game, which may come up here in a bit. Next to him, a man I'm sure has an extra head under that hair, Garrett Wines, Earl of the Angry Chicken, everybody. Next to him, Corinne uh, Lewis, who not only helped, uh, and I say helped, who primarily <laughs> makes this thing happen, uh, is sitting here and you're thinking, well, that's cool, but what else, everybody? She also heads up and works in a department at the University of Utah where they are teaching video games. Nice. It's called the E, what is it? A-E-E-A-E-A-E. Do I have it right? Yeah. Oh, hello. Entertainment, arts, and engineering. They're doing big stuff with esports now, and uh, I'm stoked to have your voice here, so thank you for being here. Corinne Lewis, everybody. <laughs> And then finally, but never least, wait, that's the wrong sentence. Last but not least, Patrick Bejoff from France, host of Pixels, co-host of The Instance, and so many more things. Patrick, welcome to the uh, stage, buddy. Okay, so you might be asking yourselves, what's this going to be about? I had, I'll, I'll kind of tell you where my thinking was and then explain why we're going to do what we're going to do. Uh, I knew we were going to do a video game panel for a long time, planning and, and leading up to this event. But I was really struggling about what we talk about. We've done these kind of panels on the show before. But in the past, the problem has been we all love video games for the most part. A lot of gamers in here. Raise your hand if you play video games on a regular basis. See, look, it's oh, an wow. overwhelming majority. Uh, and if it's mobile or something all the way up to some high-end AAA title, we're all, we all have our hands in video games some, in some way. So this could have been a panel of, yeah, video games. Good job, everybody. We love them. Pat them on the back and talk about how great they are. But that sound is kind of boring to me. Not so to me. <laughs> <That> <laughs> not to like Greg. Definitely not to Greg. But great. 
Instead, <laughs> instead, I thought what we would do to kind of change things up a little bit is talk about video games from a little bit different perspective, a broader perspective. Why we play them in the first place. What they mean to us personally and why in a, and I'll use this term loosely because I don't actually think of it this way, but, and Corinne, I know you've got a great answer for this, but some people would say we are in fake worlds doing fake things for fake rewards, right? It's one way of putting it. Uh, I don't think that's what we're doing, but if you think about it, somebody created a thing, we are in that thing, something about that thing is compelling us forward. Hence the reason I want Wendy on this panel. She knows a lot about brain science. She knows a lot about how people think and why we respond the way we do to certain things, why we keep playing, why we want to be loved, why we need human companionship. All those kinds of things uh, are out there. And part of that is, well, what's giving us this dopamine hit every time I get a sweet drop in Diablo 3, right? So we'll hear a little bit about that but we're going to talk just about what that is and patrick made a good point the other day we'll talk about this too that oh i did what i'm <laughs> that's why it's memorable don't remember that because <laughs> what i'm actually talking about is game design it's another way to put it right so when these guys design video games and in russell's case designs audio that needs to help us feel a part of that world to immerse ourselves i mean he's playing with our brains maybe more than anybody up here in terms of giving it, yeah, exactly. He's the puppet master. <laughs> Pulls those strings, makes you feel things. Yeah, he's pulling those strings for us. And, yeah, uh, I, ju I just love the idea that Russell is playing with my brain. That is appealing <laughs> to me. Molding it into his image. He sends the notes in your ears. Exactly. So I think that's a fascinating aspect to this. And we're going to let you guys have a voice today, too. We'll do some Q&A uh, a little bit later. But I want to talk about what makes us tick in this way. Is it game design? Is it something else? Is, it, is, is the job of, the, of, of Greg Street and people like him, is it to figure out the best ways to just get into those brains and say, dopamine, 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 aren't you glad I'm you know, giving you all the dopamine you can handle? Or is it more than that? Are these works of art, are they weird wastes of time? Are, uh, are life changing now and moving toward things like AR and VR? And what does that mean to this conversation about the way we perceive these things? Also, a lot of us are parents. How many parents are here? Okay, that's a fair amount of parents. And you're gamers, too. Many of you raised hands twice. And I guarantee you've had at least one or two moments in your life where you said, well, when is the right time for Junior to, you know, play Grand Theft Auto V or whatever? <laughs> Never's the answer, correct? Uh, but a better example might be, when should I pay for a subscription? They can play World of Warcraft with me. Or when should I... Get them a Steam account and let them play some weird little indie games. Or when is it appropriate, not just content-wise, but when is it appropriate for their development, for their brain development, for their ability to make judgments about what they're seeing, what they're interacting with. That's stuff that affects all of us as players, but certainly affects those who are, are young and aren't quite done laying down those pathways. So a lot of this comes from frequent conversations with Wendy on TMS about these kinds of issues, dealing with a variety of life questions. I think it'll be fun to apply it here. And we may have some disagreements on some of it. We may not. You guys may have some thoughts that we hadn't even thought of. But let's just kind of open it up real quick. Corinne, I want you to start because I, I threw this idea at you a couple of days ago about fake world doing fake things for fake rewards. And you immediately had an answer for me that sounded pretty smart, like you worked at a university or something. <laughs> so would you say that, is that, if I said to you, hey, that's the way it is, would you you'd say, is that, am I accurate? Is it just... Okay, explain why. I mean, we 
Into the mic. We, we <laughs> give them meaning. I'm new at this, can you tell? Um, we give them meaning. They're, they are spaces that we put ourselves into. And play itself is just a fundamental part of our nature. Wendy can probably talk to that a little bit more than I can. But we, these things matter. And all of the social aspect, the people that we're playing with matter to us. I think you all know that, right? Yeah, I'm gonna make an argument right now that this isn't happening without video games being a part of it. Video games are a huge part of what brought all of us together. It's a huge part of what drives me and my content. So I think, it, it's, only, I think it's safe to say that video games have mattered in the construction of this big extended community that goes well beyond this room. So yes, that is, I, I think that's 100%. Anybody, any other thoughts on that? Wendy, let's talk about this play thing. Playing's fun, right? We need yeah. to play. It's not just rocks and sticks anymore. <laughs> yeah, but rocks and sticks work. Like we've been playing since we were humans, right? Since we were homo sapiens. Sure. So we, we have lots of games in our lives. Yeah. So yeah. Exploiting them oh, now. So <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yesterday. Oh. Had to be really close to it. Uh, yeah. Play is crucial for brain development. Your brain does not develop. We we have lots of unfortunate examples of kids who were unable to play because they were in restrictive areas in an orphanage and not touched and not interacted, and their brains do not develop the way they should. So absolutely, it's crucial for human life. It's what it really is, if you think about it. Play is work for children. Um, it's how it's they, training, fi right? they figure out, I'm looking at his face right now and I know what he's thinking because I have played a lot in my life. And right. yeah. I'm right. a player. I played with British people, <laughs> so I know. <laughs> so you learn how to do certain things that are enormously important when you're an adult through play as a child because they can't sit down and study it and learn how perception works and what the eyeball's doing. They learn it by doing it, but they do it by playing. So yeah, it's crucial. Okay. Patrick, you were going to say something. No, I was going to mention that basically it's training for what you're at the basest level. If you don't have, you know, cities and, and if you're 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago, you're playing and, you know, play fighting and, and with your brothers or siblings or whatever to learn how to handle things in, once you're an adult and you actually need to run away really fast to save your life for, you know, so... There's a lot of this, I think, that translates into play in general, but kind of also, it's, it's almost like video games are a byproduct of evolution and technology. Like, it's what you do when you, when you have those impulses to interact with others and get that, that training, but instead of, you know, having uh, sticks and, and stones, you have this awesome thing that you can jump into and that makes it even more compelling. Um, and I often hear criticism about, about um, we all do, you know, Grand Theft Auto V or whatever. But I remember when I was a kid, before video games were that big, we would play cowboys and Indians and, and cops and robbers. And you would actually go and make the motion with your hand or with a stick, like, bang, bang, you're dead. I don't think anyone was thinking, like, oh, my God, he killed his friend. Like, he's going <laughs> to, you know. So. Only if you did a really good sound effect. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, Greg, Sometimes. sorry, if I just, when you're, when, if you design like a, a prototype or a new game, how much of it is feeling and how much of it is science in terms of, you know, how much of it is, oh, it feels really fun and cool when you do this thing, or 
yeah, we've measured it and we see that retention is higher when we have this number in this way. And, you know, is it, is it very sciencey or is it very emotional? I'm sure it depends a lot on the studio. The places I've worked, I get really uncomfortable when the developers start to talk too much about the dopamine hit. I think that just risks treating players like lab rats or you're trying to manipulate them instead of like creating a fun experience they want to be part of. So we think of it a lot more as like, so here's the secret sauce to almost every game, whether it's a video game, a board game, tabletop, anything. You guys ready for this? This ready? sounds huge. <laughs> Start taking notes. Yeah, this is Greg Street again, by the way. All right, go ahead. Uh, like we're saying, getting better at something is immensely satisfying. As, as human beings, we like to learn. And if you break almost any game down, it is there's a goal you want to reach, there's an obstacle to that goal, and then there are tools to help you overcome that obstacle. And figuring out the right tool to use, being good at applying it, learning all this game knowledge, that is the fun part. And for games that we want to spend a lot of time in, typically this learning curve goes on forever to where we feel progress, because I'm sure we've all played games where I, you have no idea what's going on, or else it's so freaking difficult that you can't progress. And those are the games you tend to stop playing. Likewise, if you get to the point where like, you master things really easily, you're like, well, I'm not being challenged anymore. This isn't interesting for me. I'm going to put this down and find something else. So the really good games, and you know, World of Warcraft, Diablo, hopefully League of Legends are all in there, um, are the games where the more you play, the better you get. And there's always something new to learn. And there's always something new to try. And we try to make the games with that in mind and, and focus less on, if we change this button from blue to red, we can increase the size of the dopamine hit and manipulate players into playing the game longer. Um, I am sure there are studios out there that do that. I hope I never work at one. Um, I really like working on long-term games where players keep coming back. And if you create a situation where you kind of have a love-hate relationship with the game, um, you may not want to keep coming back. So it's not, a, it's not just an issue of semantics. There really is... Uh, there's a concerted effort to be, to be like, we're making a cool thing, we want it to be the coolest it can be, we want it to be the thing I want to play. It's not, you're never just going, well, I need, we need to make sure, I hate using the A word, but we need to make sure everyone's addicted to our game. I, I think that's not just semantics, at least it rings true to me that you, that, uh, it, that's bad business. That would be bad business if, you're, if a developer just tried to hone in on how to ruin us <laughs> instead well, of how to give us great new experiences or fun things to do or you know creative experiences we wouldn't have otherwise. Well, I, I definitely feel like our beginning developers think that we're just employing Skinner box techniques. And that's the first thing we teach them is, do you want to play that game? Do you want to spend you know, $100 or whatever we think that games cost nowadays in just being manipulated? Nobody wants to play that game. I have certainly played many video games where I feel manipulated, <laughs> but I don't stick with them. And I, you know, I think that the good games don't do that. And I think that that's, that's when you get that addiction word that comes out. Yeah, and it has a lot of weight, that word. Well, I think that that's what, um, especially our beginning developers, think that that's what they're trying to get. I mean, I don't know about you, but Angry Birds made a lot of money, and I don't really find that to be all that addictive. Yeah, I mean, similarly, Russell, when, do, when you're composing music, are you thinking about, you know, engagement? Is it, again, is, it, is, it, is there any data in there, or is it more emotion in terms of how you kind of come to whatever's in that piece? I, I prefer to use the word immersion, mm -hmm. and uh, absolutely the emotion is, is key to this. 
you know, Patrick talking about the history of games, Wendy talking about the history of, of why we play games. Also, in some cases, we, we have wanted a place to play, whether it was a park or, a, you know, it, maybe it's your living room. I don't know. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, video games, that technology has allowed us to create an amazing imaginary place that we can almost touch and it makes that immersion factor and that suspension of disbelief all the more readily achievable. And so my job, I think, is to amplify that and to support that, and hopefully not contradict that at its most basic level. Then there's another level where uh, I think, akin to what Greg said, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we're not, they're not looking to change the color of a, of a button or something to try and in, increase some specific thing. We just want to make the game more fun to play, easier to access, less friction to get in, so that you, you do feel like, yeah, it was hard, but I got a little better, so I want to come back. And uh, so the next level of sound is to try and be a part of that experience. And, and I think Overwatch is so far uh, our best example at Blizzard of that. Mm -hmm. You know, music does that to film, obviously. And it's, it's doing it more and more in video games. Certainly, the technology's caught up. If you were working at Blizzard in, let's say, 1992, when the company was starting, you'd have MIDI files to work with, and there wasn't a lot of fidelity, and you didn't have these kind of orchestrated, beautiful uh, you know, things you could do. But now, you, I mean, you were just telling me about some amazing experiences you've had recently with huge orchestras, and it always blows my mind that you're just not faking it on a keyboard. But, but my point is that, seems like, that. it yeah. seems like that matters. You know what I'm saying? Like, it matters for you and the kind of work you want to do, the level you want, is you want to aim for the kind of immersion that only comes from just, like, a huge bunch of wind instruments and drums or whatever else it takes. Am I on the right track yeah. with that? Oh, yeah. We, we've been listening to uh, music made by live human beings uh, all our lives, all our existence as the human race. And so... Uh, and it's not that electronic music is not that, it is that. I love electronic music in turn, maybe more the old fact, the, the older uh, uh, definition of it before, it, I'm not speaking so much of the, of the Dropping EDM, acid. I'm talking more about uh, finding new colors that the orchestra could not produce. And just, just to see what, you know, worlds were there to discover. But, um, but we, I think we all resonate with, with with orchestras, with dozens, if not hundreds of people making this, this music. And, you know, we hear it in our favorite films and it's just, it's always there. So I think it was very natural for that to uh, enter the game world as well. Sure. Patrick? Uh, talking about sound, I want to go back a little bit to something more simple uh, because I think everyone, you know, understands that you create something grandiose with a, an orchestra and that's going to be breathtaking and, and, and immersive. But there's a whole other part of your job in sound, which is those tiny things that are also immensely satisfying, like the sound that a gun makes when you reload in Overwatch. It has to sound just right. And Overwatch is a great ex example of that, where every, the sound is incredible in those small moments as well. But it's not just Overwatch. I mean, Diablo, when you open that chest and all of the things come flying out with that The sound of a body like, exploding. Yeah, no, well. but oh. even that, like seriously. Squish, I'm gonna do another played, one, yeah. If you've played a little bit of the, of the Necromancer in Diablo 3, like those corpse, corpse explosions, explosions, they sound like satisfying. And I'm wondering, 
kind of what Terpster was asking, is there a science to this? Like, or do you just try with your Foley artist like all the sounds that you, you can find and you're like, yeah, that, that, you know, lettuce, when you chop it, it sounds exactly like what we need. Like, it's, it's really, I mean. You just get someone to do your dinner that way. Yeah. <laughs> try, try cutting the carrots, really, that's it, like that, that's good. And try cooking a chicken for like 30 minutes, you know, see what that yeah. sounds like. I, I'm, I'm sure there, that's There are what, YouTube videos for you, you could do. <laughs> I'm sure oh, okay. that's what they think about. You know, they're out having dinner and they hear something and they're like, oh my God, that will combine perfectly with that other thing that oh, I heard. That happens and, all the time. Yeah. yeah. A lot of vegetables uh, were, were harmed <laughs> in, in, in Blizzard's history, for sure. Um, we have to think, the, the sound team at Blizzard, they're such an incredibly talented group of artists. And I would say, you know, in their field, they're every bit as dedicated and uh, as insightful to the emotional impact of what they do as uh, the concertmaster of you know, a major philharmonic or something like that. So you hitting on that is getting back to my original point, which I think is, 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 I think it's a valid one. It's not a matter of you finding the right music to manipulate somebody into feeling a certain way. An idea I gave up on when I saw the Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Men, because that movie had no music. And if anything, that manipulated me into feeling a whole different way. You know what I mean? The lack of music was the music in a, in a that's, strange that's way. That's really daring. It's very rare these it's days. It's very rare. And it, wor it worked like crazy. Yeah. It was an incredible experience because of it. I wouldn't want music in it. So I guess what I'm saying is it seems like this isn't coming from a place of, well, how can I get them all teary-eyed and upset? It's coming from a place of, how do I want to feel when I see this scene? How do I want to feel when I play that game or enter that zone? Exactly. We make the games that we want to play and we want to uh, feel the same feels that hopefully you are. And, uh, and, and musically, I know that I found if, uh, if I write a piece of music, maybe with a, a little extra emotion, maybe I can draw something out of my personal life or something like that. If I kind of imbue that into the music, I've noticed that people pick up on it. They don't know why, they just, there's just some it factor in that piece of music. So, and that goes for the sound design, everything. So and the game design and the art. So Wendy, I got a question for you about uh, a statistic I read all the time. Because we're talking about kids a little bit in video games. Childhood and teenage violence at an all-time low. I don't have this in front of me, so I hope, I hope I'm getting this right. But anyway, it's all science. that stuff is lower. It's Kids are not committing acts of violence as much as they used to. It seems to be when you overlay that chart on the development of the technology of video games, they kind of crisscross in exactly the same kind of art. It seems correlated. Now, I know a lot of data can seem correlated and it is not, and that's a big fallacy. Right. However, it does seem correlated to me a little bit. Uh, your take on that. Do you think that's actually true? So let me ask you real quick. Do you think because they're exerting some of the energy, the tendencies of violence, in games, then they don't do it on the street. Is that well, what that's saying? the question. So if I'm, if you're, if if Junior again is home playing Call of Duty, and he's you know shooting Germans in the head, and he's just getting that you know whatever whatever they're getting out of that experience, that because historically this was blamed, wasn't it? You know, for for certain sure. shootings out there, they blamed video games. Yeah. But I mean, does the science say otherwise? Yeah, that's my that's my question, and maybe we don't know enough yet. But we've been at this video game thing a long enough where from kids to adults, we're getting out our more violent nature in shooters, in MOBAs, in games with swords and guns and weapons and things that we, you know, generally as a society, we, dis we, we disapprove of in polite society. 
But yet, I'm just happy to go into Overwatch and shoot people with, with a gun. Like, it's the best thing ever. So, <laughs> so, what, so what is, is that? Do you think that's a contributor? Or is there anything that's, that's talked about these days, science-wise, that may support that? I theory? think the thing, the one correlation we can make that is pretty sound scientifically is that they're not spending time outside because they are inside doing those games, and that's actually where shootings and violence happened is outside. So we can make that correlation. Kids are inside way more than they ever were, and outside sort of interactions are down. So there's an interesting concept called um, the sacred spaces, the dark sacred spaces of, of youth. It's where you figure out who the hell you are. I said that in front of my kids. Sorry, dude. Um, he, he loves League of Legends, by the way. Can you shake his yeah. hand later? Okay, yeah. cool. Um, is that a dark, sacred space? It is well, a dark, sacred space. Yeah. So the idea is, and those of you who are old can relate to this, as our dark, sacred spaces as kids was maybe a treehouse, maybe it was wandering somewhere in the woods or playing a game with the kids out. I mean, you left your parents to find the sacred spaces where you could figure out, you would play, but you would also figure out who you were and what you thought of the world and you would resolve conflicts and you would probably punch each other in the face. There's more violence in these <laughs> sacred spaces. And we've sort of locked our kids indoors to protect them from all the stuff we see on the news and the, that dark sacred space has become the internet. And there's a lot of ugly spaces that they could find themselves. And I think video games actually, you're not gonna believe I'm gonna say this, serves as a wonderful dark sacred space, um, especially when it encapsulates a lot of the good things of the collectiveness and the camaraderie and all the stuff you guys do, which is great. The trick is, and this is kind of where I wanted to get with this, is that it doesn't come immediately. And since you're talking about kids, just like in those other dark sacred spaces out in the world, you know, somebody thinking it's funny to throw a rock at Billy's head seemed like a good idea when you're seven. Not such a good idea when you're, you know, older than seven. And by the same token, it may not be a good idea that a kid sit down with a very violent game or very, you know, sexually charged game or whatever it may be uh, because they've not, they haven't figured that stuff out. Now, maybe that's how they do figure it out. I, I don't know. Is there, what's the difference between here, here you go, that's a good one. What's the difference between a kid going out and going, oh, it's, it's a treehouse, somebody left a, a nudie magazine in this treehouse here. Weird, and all their friends gather around and talk about it at school for the next six weeks, and it's like the craziest thing ever. So you're talking, talking very from personal, personal experience? <laughs> fair, fair point. But what's the difference between that and running into it because you walked into an artificial strip club in GTA? You know what I'm saying? Is it the same? Maybe it is the same. And should parents feel weird either way? Parents have more control over the game side than they did their kid going to the treehouse out in the forest. So what's the difference? Yeah, treehouse in the forest, though, is like a one-time dopamine hit. Yeah. I, and that's the challenge. <laughs> dopamine is, you know, the chemical our brain released to get us to do something. I talked about this on the show recently, but a good way to think about it is... You see an apple tree far away, your brain releases dopamine to get you to move towards that tree. So you, by the, before you starve to death, you'll have an apple. So more and more is released, you get there, you get the apple, you eat it, more dopamine. And it keeps us alive. So it's not a chemical we wanna get rid of. So it's, it's really important to have, of course. Um, the challenge with, I think, too much of it too soon is it primes the brain to require a lot more to feel okay. That's the thing we don't know with all the studies. Um, they're looking at them, they're, they're testing it. It's, it's a tricky area. I mean, all of you are like pro games, right? And then I know all the other people who are like, no games. 
and you guys should have a meeting and like share with each other because <laughs> I think it's unfortunate that there's not more dialogue because I think sometimes people's viewpoint is this must be bad for children. And, and, and maybe we should talk about age, when is good and when is not, because the brain is different at different stages. But um, I think that it's not great to be in a strip club online because your brain isn't great at knowing the difference. Um, we've recently been doing some VR. Oh my gosh, I'm hitting walls. Like I have, it's an amazing experience. It's so real and there's such cool stuff that can come from that. Um, but a kid's, well, you know, most of us are dumb enough, sometimes we can't tell certain things. But for kids, they don't have a lot of grounding in the real world to make those distinguishment, do you, distinguishments. Do you think there, uh, there is a discussion to be had though about how much it is removed from its real life counterpart? I hate that we're using strip clubs as the example. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, would, I, would, one. I, would, I would say wait, driving a car or shooting a gun. Because uh, right. you know, I played shooters at a young age. I shot my first gun when I was very young and it scared the hell out of me. And it right. is nothing, nothing like any video game experience I've ever had shooting a gun. Right. Uh, same thing for driving a car. You can have the most expensive driving rig set up at home and it's still not going to give you that feel of inertia and weight. Right. It, does, it doesn't feel the same. Well, our brains can tell the difference. Like the studies show that when they're looking at even kids' brains up to, I think the, I hate to even suggest that I know what the study says because I don't have it in front of me. But um, I, I think that there's a point, and Wendy, you probably know, that there is a, a moment when you realize that fantasy, you're not, that fantasy and reality are very different. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, it's normally when your hand hits the wall. Right. And you're like, oh, <laughs> That's oh reality. damn it. But, yeah. um, but the studies really show that video game violence is not the same thing as violence in our lives. But you can also see the studies that show that having people play Call of Duty who have been suffering from PTSD, having that control in the game makes a huge difference and it can help them work through those flashback situations. That the, the military is using a lot of games to help process things. And there, there are a lot of studies, if you guys want to know, just everybody thinks video game violence is bad, but it depends on how it's presented and I think that um, the studies that are, the academic studies that are out there are really pushing that and we need more game scholars to be doing that because um, I think there's a prejudice, a prejudice of older academics, I mean that's how we get studies for the most part, right? And they all think that video games are bad because they're used to thinking about Doom and Quake and that's how old they are. And so, Great games. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> But I, I also think that they just jumped to a conclusion about those things, and so, but I... And, and can I explain why they jumped to those conclusions? Mm -hmm. I have, and I will, you can have a list of my quotes. Um, they're amazing. So I'm gonna read something. I want you to guess what this person's talking about. Parents have become aware of a puzzling change in the behavior patterns of their children. They are bewildered by a host of new problems and find themselves unprepared, frightened, resentful, helpless. They cannot lock out this intruder because it has gained an invincible hold of their children. This Dungeons and Dragons. Ooh, close. 1936, it was Is Israel Eisenberg about the radio. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go back to the 8th century and find kids yeah, these days, quotes, books, exactly. writing, books Socrates thought writing would end the, the devil, and it's, what happens is that generation grows up, and then there's new stuff that they don't understand, and that then becomes the devil. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people out here, you know, we grew up with, with stuff, uh, and now, I mean, how many people here have Twitter? Put your hands up. Okay, now leave them up if you've got a Snapchat. Okay, now uh, who's on, um, let's think of, uh, who, who streams on Twitch? 
Has anyone got a, a Mixer account? You know, as we, as we have all these new things come along, they, they take a slightly different spin on things. Um, I mean, we, we were chatting this morning at breakfast about how, um, you know, kids necessarily, they communicate differently using social media and, you know, phones and texts and things like that than we may have. And again, because it's different and we don't understand it, it, it can be sometimes quite concerning. And I think often, you know, as people age up through, it's fine. It's, you know, I'm fine. I grew up with it. There's no well. problem at all. Well, exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I have, you know, I have no problems with, uh, with my daughter playing computer games. But at the same time, she's still my daughter. I still have to be a parent. It's like, you know, I also don't have any problems with her eventually drinking alcohol. Um, but I wouldn't just, you know, say like, yeah, go ham, do what you want. <laughs> you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, you, you have to learn to control these things and take it in moderation and find your balance. And I think that's with pretty much everything in life. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to say is kind of regardless of the medium, I think, you know, if we're talking parenting, it's about curation. And still also realizing that at some point your kid might wander into a treehouse and find a nudie mag. Like, you can't control every aspect of their life. Uh, Thanks for keeping that one alive, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Next time I'm the instance man, I'm going to okay. necro That's it. Good. And one of the nice things, like, that you guys are already ahead of the game is that you understand what games are. You understand the risk of, you know, your kids encountering weird things in an online game. You understand games that are going to try to, like, wring money out of them. Mm -hmm. I worry a lot more about um, the parents that aren't gamers, but their children are, and the parents have no idea what's going on. And I, it's going to be, I think, and as our kids grow up and then have their own kids, hopefully this will be better and gaming will be, you know, really, really mainstream at that point. Well, we're kind of to that point where comic books, I mean, comic books, you could have found a quote just as easily oh, yeah. today about how comic books are destroying the youth of America and the world. And now it's the biggest money-making thing ever. It's because we're all adults now. We all grew up with it. We love it. There isn't an adult alive who doesn't like it. There are people in their 70s going, yeah, comics, right? But even then, so video games make $88 billion a year. That is more than the movie industry and the music industry combined. So video games already are the biggest form of entertainment out there, and we're only just getting started. Uh, it's, it is a juggernaut, and you know, that is, like when you look at the demographic of who a gamer is, um, it's, a, it's a woman in you know, sort of 30s, 40s. Because, because, because games are so broad. It's like if someone says, do you like music? Of course, everyone likes music. What kind of music do you like? That's a different question. And it's the same with games. You know, we're all gamers, even if we don't know it. There's, there's some people out there who don't play games, obviously, but even then, there would be a game genre that would probably connect with them quite well. Because, you know, that's what games are. They're great. Well, this is the biggest platform that people play games on. Yeah. Right? So glad so, you brought that up. But lots of people don't think that this is really a game. You know, these the gamers don't do this. A billion people are going to be on this platform in the next 10 years because the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, are getting mobile phone devices around, you know, they haven't had, they don't have consoles. They don't really have PCs in the same way. I'm sure you guys know this better than I do. But it's, you know, the, the world wants to play games, and that's the cool thing about getting desi to design them and, and participate in this thing, is we can be thoughtful and recognize that we're impacting a lot of people. But again, we've only just started. We've Absolutely. been writing books and movies yeah. and uh, music. 
40 years. We've been doing this for 40. I mean, Ralph Baer started in what, like 1965 or something like that um, with the Magnavox Odyssey, if you guys know what that is. Um, the problem is, is the prejudice that we, we've held on to prejudice longer than movies did uh, about it because I think games are so compelling and they, it, it kind of was a very tight culture that created games. And, and so the more we can talk about it, the more we can be ambassadors for games. I mean, I don't mean to go on and on here, but we, we're making therapeutic games at the University of Utah that help people do manage their diabetes, deal with body dysmorphia. Um, PTSD. PTSD. Yeah, um, yeah there's a fantastic game. Like all called, the, yeah. we, we have phantom limb stuff at our therapeutics. Yeah, there's one called uh, That Dragon Cancer. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you get a chance to play that game, I mean, wow. Holy yeah. moly. Yeah. Uh, it's that games are just so broad mm -hmm. that, it, you know, if and, you... And I, don't, I don't know if you find this. I, I do. But I find myself craving, like maybe just as you get older, you crave more independent films and not just popcorn movies or whatever. I get that way with games these days. I like the smaller thoughtful, story-focused stuff. As much as I love to go just get out a ton of energy in something like League or whatever, and, and those have, will always have their place, just like football and baseball have their place. But sometimes you, wanna, you want more emotional satisfaction or something out of it, and there's more and more of that happening. It feels like that's just going to get more broad. But it also means just by the numbers game, we're going to end up with you know some garbage. There's going to be garbage. There's garbage now. There's shovelware now that's terrible and you shouldn't play it. That's so why I have a pretty extensive self-regulating system of people reviewing things, either people or, or professional reviewers, or some combination of those, uh, or your favorite streamer recommends a thing and you, believe, you, know, you trust him because he's never let you down before. Like it's kind of taking care of itself to weed out the junk. But like anything that gets bigger, it gets junkier, some I, of it. I also like what Corinne said about the, the new stuff that you can do therapeutically, I think, will also convert a lot of the non-gamers as time goes on. Because they will then interact in those ways. I mean, there's cool games of, hey, let's collectively solve the water crisis in a certain part of the country so that collective wisdom can be used towards something. It's pretty cool. Something that is converting me, I have to say, is um, the work people are doing with VR. Because what we worry about as people who make sure people are happy together is we are not evolved very well to be in this moment. We're evolved to look into someone's eyes and have certain parts of our brain light up and teach us what to do and how to feel. And some of the disconnection that can come from everyone looking down and staring at their phone is alarming because we think, well, how are you going to learn that stuff? But VR is this amazing way to the brain goes, oh, I see this and I feel this. And so some really cool anti-bullying stuff. So you can be in the position of the bullier and walk through the world as that character and you can walk through the world as the one being bullied and your your brain doesn't know the difference and it is producing the right feelings and and it's getting you into someone's shoes and there's another really cool one that's been going on is you have a group of people in the world making decisions about what to do with the refugee crisis and most of them have no one-on-one -on -one experience with any refugees maybe they've traveled to a camp here or there but they have been able to create a VR where you sit down in a circle um, with folks in a refugee camp and you have a conversation. And man, how is that to trigger all the right stuff in your brain to say, okay, you're making a decision about real people and real things. So, I'm becoming a fan. <laughs> <laughs> we never really played games when we were growing up, but we'll get it with VR. <laughs> um, only, last thing I want to say, and then we'll do some questions. We'll have some mics run around. 
uh, by two very special cool dudes I'll have doing that. But, oh, Patrick, go ahead. Um, I, before we move on to something else, I also have a question going back to game design a little bit. Something that we talked about a lot is, you know, Greg, you were saying um, the thing that is super motivating is getting better, uh, giving you the tools and, you know, and there are two different big categories of games, which are uh, player versus player games and uh, player versus environment games. And so there is a big question for often on the instance when you talk about WoW or Diablo or, you know, all of those games, you go through this quote unquote single player experience and then you sort of consume the content and then you want to keep playing the game, but the, the developers aren't going to make, you know, 150 hours worth of like linear content. And you want to keep getting better. And on one end of the thing, it's like you run the same dungeon 15 million times and you get one item, which is very frustrating. What game are you and talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and any game that is uh, to be played longer than the, the, the initial content, right? That, it works like that. And um, the other end of it is like you do something and you press a button and all your complete set comes out. And that's obviously not very satisfying either. So I don't know how much you can talk uh, to this, but as a game designer, how do you solve that problem of providing content, um, which is, you know, the, the way I look at it is the grind is a necessary part of those games. When you get to end game, people complain about the grind, but really that's what you're, you're, you want to do when improving your character. So I is that... Mathematically, I don't think it's possible to create content faster than players can right. consume it. That's so the there's kind of two solutions. One is procedural generation, which games like Diablo and all the roguelikes use really well to where even if it's the same basic experience, it's different enough that you don't know where the monster's going to be or you don't know what the treasure's going to be. And then the other one is multiplayer because people are unpredictable. There will always be players more skilled than you. As soon as you get better, there's a, you know, a new challenger comes in to give you a run for the money. Um, and I think that's why a lot of the games that really stand the test of time from, you know, Dungeons and Dragons up to MOBAs today um, are multiplayer because people are interesting and people are unpredictable. Very interesting. So, one final question about the way League works because Wendy brought this up the other day and I just wanted to get it out there. We could just touch on it briefly. Your game, if, uh, when I say your game, I mean League of Legends. <laughs> This one you made all by yourself. It's um, great. When you're playing League of Legends, of <laughs> and your mom comes in the room and says, "Dinner time," and you go, "I can't. I'm in the right in the middle of the game. My four other friends are here. We're just we're we're almost done. It's you know you're 45 minutes in. There is no pause button. There is no anything. You can't save. In fact, if you leave, you get penalized. This is true of all mobas. So that's a bummer for mom, isn't it, Wendy? Not talking about, you know, Abraham exactly, but maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, surely this is a perception thing. This is something that, you know, if, if they were outside playing a game of soccer, for example, and they're near the end, it's like, well, okay, finish up and then come in. You know, I, yeah, I if, don't... If you I, tell them yeah. 30 minutes before, dinner in 30 minutes, yeah. and if you're not done, you know, I'm pulling the plug. But, again, games historically that you could stop or pause, because they weren't multiplayer games, obviously, you know, that perception... 
could be correct, where it's like, no, you can, you can leave that now, you can come back to that later. Yeah, you could try and teach your child that, hey, if you're going to play one of these games that you cannot walk away from, make sure you check in with your father or your mother before you start a game close to dinner time or close to when we're leaving for soccer practice or whatever. Dad, I, you're such a square. I, well, <laughs> I, I do this with my wife, Katie, who is in the audience. <laughs> like, if I know we're going out for the evening, I'm like, hey, dear, you give me 20 minutes, 30 minutes? Okay, I got time for Heroes of the Storm. Sorry, Greg. Yeah. I, I think you should just get get mom to, to play the video game too. Oh, I'd like that. I like where your head's at. My dear wife, who is not a gamer, having to explain to her, I cannot come help you in the kitchen right now because I'm tanking molten core, and there are 39 other people dependent on me. Honestly, yeah. She did not understand. There's, I, some, there's something about the intimacy of that that you're in a room with 39 other people who, without you, are hosed. It does feel different than the soccer game you have to finish up. Well, and I don't know what it is. It's bonding, though, as well. I mean, I remember those moments. It was, it was fantastic. We were friends that had come together, and together, after hours and hours of failing, we would succeed. And that was such a euphoric you know, moment that we shared, and we earned that together. And that was a team effort. Um, it's just a fantastic feeling. I think that's why guilds as a whole uh, you know, last so long. And all of you guys who are in AIE and you know, just Frog Pants as a whole, you, know, you play games together and you achieve the impossible at times. And that's such an amazing feeling uh, that I just think it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Now, what I really want to do is hear what you guys have to ask. Uh, we're gonna take questions. The mic boys, I don't know if you have any cool mic boy music, are going to be my co-hosts of CORE. Uh, John Jagger and Bo Schwartz. Come get mics, boys. Um, also, uh, what we're going to do as well, so um, this, is, this is a weird plug because it doesn't really work. Uh, we just released a new game uh, at the Yogscast called Cave Blazers. Uh, it's, a, it's a small little roguelike. It's been doing really well. Um, but we're going to, all of you get a free copy. So um, that'll be emailed to you at some point. In it's theory. our Oprah moment. Yeah, there you go. You get a game, you get. But it's really good fun. Uh, we're putting local uh, co-op in it as well soon, and then later online co-op. Um, but uh, don't feel any pressure to play it. Uh, it's really good. <laughs> I, only recommendation I'd be is use a controller if you can. Yeah, definitely a controller. Uh, and if you like Spelunky, it's not just it's not like Spelunky in every way, but there's some. It's, yeah, it's about very it. Spelunky. It's the best Spelunky since Spelunky. I agree. Uh, I actually agree. So, it's really, yeah. I bought it way before I knew Terpster or the Oxcast was going to have anything to do with it. Like when it was in early access, a little bit rough, and fell in love with it then. So when I heard about this, I got stoked. So you're all going to get a rad game. There you go. Uh, Cave Blazers. Okay. Yeah, you'll get an email. I'm not sure how we're doing it yet, but we'll figure it out. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. How, how, how are you going to get the keys to everyone? Well, email. I just get, you know, I asked Valve to send me a CSV, and then somehow we hope that we have your emails when you bought tickets. Yeah, we have your emails. Uh, so if you don't get a copy, email whoever. Don't we'll feel scared about that. But we, we'll do we it have next your emails, week. But next week gonna, sometime. Okay. We're not the NSA, it'll be fine. You all have to get a selfie of yourself from Nertacular to Terpster. Uh, John, you, you have somebody? I do. This right. is uh, going to be the first question, so no pressure, but you're going to set the tone for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. F first off, what's your name? It's Paul from Toronto. Okay, Paul from Toronto. What's your question? Um, first of all, um, okay, um, in my house, my daughters get pissed off at me because they play Minecraft and can shut it off at any time, and I'm playing Overwatch and have to finish my round. And that's when, at dinner time, that gets a bit the opposite of what you were talking about. But um, for my son, I think I talked to Scott about this a while ago, that my son was in an anti-obesity program and they actually did a study with a CAT scan and measured the different 
parts of the brain what lit up when they showed him different pictures. So with my son, they showed his key food lit up the same spot, not only with addiction, but with the family pictures. Of, and that was more intense, so that it was loving rather than just addiction, which was the bad part. But with my son, there was two other pictures, a one-up mushroom and a Pokeball. <laughs> so it's, it's just like... You Did those light him up too? Yeah, the yeah. same as the family. So same as family. Yeah, same as family. So the, the, they determined that it was more of a loving thing than an addictive thing mm -hmm. with his food addiction, for lack of a better term, and with the gaming. Wendy, any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, can I is? give everyone just a brand new definition of addiction? Ready? Memorize this. Tell everyone you know. Addiction is not what you think it is. Addiction is a lack of connection. So that's the cool thing, actually, about gaming. I mean, you're describing... I'm going to say the word wrong. Raiding together? Whatever. When you do your thing together and you bond. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Not raging. Good job. I'm growing up. It's we good. do rage, though, as well. You There's a lot of rage well. going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, there was a funeral in World of Warcraft Scott showed me, and I'm crying. And I'm like, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Now, you're getting connection. And when, you find, when we find people who have addictions, so often, um, and that's why there's similar brain parts lighting up, is that it's a lack of connection and you're finding connection with the food, with whatever the thing is that you're quote unquote addicted to. So it's about connection. Yeah. All right. Is that Bo, you got somebody? Off there. Yeah, it's you're time. good. You're all good. I need somebody who really needs a dopamine hit. I think, <laughs> I think I want somebody who looks like they really need it. Uh, I'm glad you all planned right. ahead there, Bo. Yeah, good job. We're real ready Should with another question person. While we're Oh, sorry. Right, going. All right. Your question. It's actually about dopamine. Um, so my question is more for Wendy. Um, Scott asked you... Oh, I'm Brian, by the way. Hello, Brian. Brian. We don't have any Brians here, so I'm glad we finally have one. It's a whole page. Oh. No, it's fine. I promise. Um, okay, so Scott asked you um, about concerns people should have about violent video games, and you spoke briefly about dopamine. Um, do you think that there's something to be said about normalizing scandalous actions? Um, a slightly unrelated comparison um, could be pornography, where that the first time you watch an explicit video, you feel scandalized and have kind of a massive dopamine rush, but the more you're exposed to it, the more um, like normal it becomes, um, and the less effective the dopamine is on you, so you have to find other ways to get that dopamine rush. <coughs> Do you think that video games like Grand Theft Auto are feeding a similar mentality of needing to constantly push the boundaries of what is scandalizing and what will cause the biggest dopamine rush. Right, I'm, I'm not probably qualified to talk about the violence so much, but the, the sexually explicit stuff a little more so. Um, and Grand Theft Auto, all I know is that it's fairly sexist, yeah? Am I wrong? Um, yeah. Can be, it's a little sizes. misogynistic. I mean, it's, it's satirically it's, it's so. It's the same as any HBO show, basically. Okay, if so you imagine, HBO and Grand Theft Auto. But it's okay. HBO where you're one of the characters and rather than it be a season length of uh, 12 hours, 24 hours or whatever, it's 60 plus hours. Okay. Yeah, but also it's, but the term sexism in this case is also appropriate, except it's a satirical sort of approach. It's like, look how like literally sexist some of these characters are, but it's doing it in a way that's supposed to be character ex exploration. Uh -huh. It's like, well, another Does good example. Does everyone know that? I don't think everyone knows that. <laughs> okay. And that was my reason I brought that one up, because when I say everyone, I think we all do, but I don't think, anyone's kids do because right. that uh, just looks like mean behavior to somebody who doesn't know they're being satirical in my opinion 
Well, and I would just, just say me. with the, the dopamine, we, we connect, speaking back to the connection word, we connect with the things that give us dopamine. So if I hate apples, that tree's not gonna give me dopamine anymore, um, but I will bond more and more with the thing that I'm experiencing dopamine with. So artificial manipulation of how much dopamine somebody gets, you can create um, really strong connections, and I think sexually explicit material can have that effect. What I've found with, with clients who um, their primary sexual outlet is virtual. Um, they, they have a bonding mechanism that kind of happens there and makes it a little tougher in real life because it isn't so straightforward and easy to, to do. So it can be uh, problematic. Violence, I don't, I don't think is in the same way, I think, because our evidence is showing there's less violence, hard to know, but maybe normalizing. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just a brief experience. I'm living in Sweden, there was a school stabbing all my kids get sent home from school. It's a, a town a million miles away from us. And I'm like, why do they need to come home? Because I'm an American. And what I'm used to is a whole school being sh shot up and lots of kids dying. So my, I am desensitized, absolutely. And for the Swedes, it was the worst day in their history. So yes, we absolutely do get desensitized. I felt really bad about that, but I'm, yeah, um, it's, it's tricky. So it's, I don't know what that means long term, so I can't answer that very well. Sorry. Without the scientific background, I will also point out that the, this idea of violence inflation kind of is, has, it's kind of like the things that the kids are doing these days is so much more terrible than what we were doing that's been happening since, you know, Plato. Um, and because I remember very clearly that Mad Max 1 was banned like, well, not banned, but it was a huge discussion and it was called hyperviolence. You know, it was like horrifying to many of the parents. I don't know if you've gone back to watch Mad, Ma Mad Max 1. I mean, yeah, there are some moments I, I that I think are that's also an argument in terms of the fidelity of games and movies is improving now, that it gets to that point where, is it too real for what we do? Um, I mean, we VR always... can be so immersive, but at the same time, you know, most of the time you're shooting robots or Nazis, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> but. It, it, it is a different, I mean, when you press a button to fire a gun to when you hold and pull a trigger and feel that, um, that is a very different experience. But as the technology improves, we emulate these experiences more and more. Um, and so I, I can definitely see, uh, again, a reason to moderate uh, how much we consume when it gets so real that it's indistinguishable. But it's... it's I don't think that it will ever get so real. Uh, we're speculating, but we don't have the tools to, to actually know. But we were mentioning earlier, the difference is that you know it's not real. You can be in a VR environment and it feels very, you know, you're, but you know it's like a dream. You do something in a dream, you wake up, you know it was a dream, right? And it's, it can be immensely traumatizing to see something minor happening in real life because you know it actually happened. Mm. So I'll bet I'm... Well, and part of it, if you think about like, Hopefully all of us have had, plug your ears, kids, have, it, have had sex. So when you look at Witcher 3, I think that was a spoiler. I hope. <laughs> if you haven't, show hands, you do. Put your hands down. So when we look at the stuff, I, I, I hope all of you have played The Witcher 3, those scenes are so awkward and Just so you weird. know, she's, she's about The Witcher 3 the way I am with Mad Max Fury Road. It's totally true. That's how Fantastic. she is with it. Oh, it's, it's totally Just to give you a comparison. It's one of the best games ever made. Absolutely. 
I would have said Psychonauts was my favorite game before that, Ooh. but anyway. Um, but most of us have not had a chance to pull a trigger of a gun, unless you grew up in Utah, I guess, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Florida. But, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. So in the U.S. <laughs> in the U.S., we have had exposure to a lot more guns. But really, we don't really deal with that violence. So, like, we have personal experience of being intimate or close to another human being. So we can see how weird that feels much more easily than we can understand that it's a very different thing when you shoot a gun, really shoot a gun, versus in a game. I don't know where I was going with that. Well, you just don't <laughs> want to be the, you don't want to be the one with the kid who decides to try it on his own because you were letting them play a very violent game at age five. And that's where parents come in. I mean, honestly, this is where you guys have your jobs cut out for you. That's your job to make those determinations. And it's not always going to be perfect. My experience was, the way it worked out for me in my life and my kids, is I just played with my kids. It's the same, I'll never forget, my parents took me to see um, Breakfast Club when I was 15. And I was going to go see it no matter what, because this is like the anthem of my generation, right? And I was so stoked to see it, and I couldn't wait. And I spent enough time in detention. I knew what was up in there, and <laughs> I was really excited. And, and I was going to go either way. And they decided, they made a really, I think, smart choice to say, all right, well, it's a rated R movie. They were super against those. And they said, we'll take you. We'll go with you. We'll experience it with you. And it was a huge bonding moment, because it was everything I needed that movie to be, and my parents had my back. And I didn't feel the need to rebel against it. I didn't feel the need to be weird about it. Play video games with your children. If they want to play them, be there with them. Doesn't mean you have to rock them in Mario Kart. You're gonna get rocked, probably. But be there, help them in creative games, be part of their Minecraft adventures. Like, that's, that's just like anything else with your kid. You're gonna bond, but you're also gonna bond over something they think is really cool, and you're not the villain. And you're not the reason they went to their friend's house and didn't tell you they were doing that all afternoon. John, you got another call or a question? Yeah, it's, it's like call. a call. Yes, caller. Come uh, I'm here with my, my new best friend. What's your name? Uh, John. Perfect. <laughs> All right, John, what's your question? Yeah, so it seems to me that uh, really successful people tend to be successful independent of what they're doing or what the instantiation of, of their success is um, because they know how to be successful. And you see a similar thing with great artists where they understand the mechanics and structure of language be it uh, arranging music, cooking great food, uh, writing, and things like that. And they understand that there's a transferable sort of underlying uh, structure to things. What I'm wondering is, is do video games in allowing, uh, especially younger children, allowing them to develop a sense of efficacy and learning that efficacy in different situations, um, is that transferable to applying efficacy and, and being able to do things in real life. So, so it's, it's, like a, it's like a guild leader who puts on his resume that he ran a 200-person guild. Does, does he actually have skills he wouldn't have had otherwise? That kind of it? Well, and it's now the lead designer of World of Warcraft. Well, or, yeah. or like learning yeah. perseverance, yeah. right? So, so someone who's in maybe a, an unfortunate uh, home or family situation or is maybe impoverished or something like that or doesn't have the, the sort of um, easier road of things, may in a video game realize that, hey, if I work hard and I do these things, I can get ahead, and then that's a safe place for them to explore that and then apply that to their school life or home life or career and use that as kind of a, a stepping off point. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all problem solving within a given rule set. And uh, 
one game is completely different from the other in its, in its scope. You know, something that's very straightforward, like a traditional uh, campaign, something like Half-Life or the old Halos uh, versus Minecraft is very different, but it's still, all, that's, that's problem solving within a given rule set, and I think just about any job you get unless, I don't know, you're some weird thing in a hippie commune, uh, <laughs> is, is going to be the, the same thing. No so. offense, hippies. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, I mean offense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, thank you, John, okay. for all those kind things you said <laughs> right. about experts and stuff. It's, it's very kind. And, and briefly, it's funny. You kind of, what Garrett just did was kind of describe the entire conversation here in a nutshell. And I always forget that it does kind of boil down to that. A world with rules. And some of the satisfaction of winning and moving on to something harder and winning and moving on and trying more and dying and learning from your death and doing it again is simply that. It's our prerogative in life to try to figure that out. How to live better, how to be better, how to deal with a situation, how to handle anxieties and, and tackle them and then overcome them. So in many ways, it just feels like video games are an analog for everyday life. And it's just, you just can't let it get too much in the way of your everyday life. <laughs> well, um, and there's also another aspect of this which absolutely it puts you in you know you have problem solving opportunities and maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago you you could do that by you know doing crossword puzzles and and playing you know you would play monopoly or whatever these board games and that kind of things and you had a few opportunities but now with these virtual experiences, you do get to experience so many different things, to have different situations and different uh, emotional things that you, I mean, it's not necessarily a kid's game, but if any one of you has played through um, The Last of Us, for example, you know, that, that the introduction of that game makes you experience things that you wouldn't have experienced otherwise, hopefully. And that opening sequence broke me as a person. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and so you get, it's all, it all comes back to, the, to the, that thing of training. So you're training yourself for many different things. And I think to some extent, when you encounter them in real life later, you're a little bit more prepared. Obviously, it's not, it's not exactly the same thing. But um, in the same way that kids playing together are learning something. My, my oldest daughter is, is an example. Um, when she was real little and I would play Tomb Raider 1 on the PlayStation 1, she would say, Dad, please don't play the scary game with the lady in it. <laughs> and that's what she was talking about. And I remember thinking, oh, this game, what's, this is the worst polygon nightmare ever. Who would be scared of this game? And now she's older and mature, and her favorite TV show is The Walking Dead. Well, that doesn't jive, does it? Like, how can you like that? But you were afraid of Laura Croft's adventures in 1996. Well, again, it's an age thing. Chomp boobs. I, yeah. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> this freaks me out. I, I don't think this is actually saying anything. I just want to share the fact that I was not allowed to play Mortal Kombat when I was a kid, but I was allowed to watch Aliens. Yeah, that's messed up. Well, it's because you're doing... Well, I don't know. There's a million arguments about that, but you should right. have been able to play Mortal Kombat. On that time. note, I think we're ready for another question. Yeah, let's do it. Bo, what do you <laughs> yeah, got? Yeah, let's get us... All right. So who do we have here? Uh, I'm Kat from Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right. And where are you from? Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> that's not I a name. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a scope of a coincidence. <laughs> I did it for the I like it. You guys are all laughing now. I feel great. Um, so let's have a question. All right. Um, so I've been following the developer diaries for Ninja Theory's um, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. I don't know if anyone else has, but I've been really fascinated with how they've been working with directly with people who have mental health issues like schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder to craft their sound design. So they're using more 3D sound. To, uh, because the main character in the game has schizophrenia or 
multiple personality disorder, I forget which. Um, but they have all these voices that are coming from all directions and they really wanted to make it as real as possible. And so I'm really fascinated with how they're doing it and I'm curious um, if there are any other innovations that you're following that you're really excited about in video game design or if there's areas that you wish more companies would explore along that line of, uh, whether it's VR or sound design, that kind of stuff. I mean, Greg, your, your main gig is obviously an isometric MOBA that rules the world. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you've got a pretty varied experience, and, and, and it's funny, all of those games have very big differences. Even in the, in the view that we have, we have an isometric view in League of Legends. We have a, a much higher sort of city view of what you did when you were an ensemble and worked on Age of Empires in that series. <laughs> Certainly in World of Warcraft, a completely different angle on the action. Anything that's out there, be it mobile or VR or whatever, does any of that make you go, oh man, that's going to be a cool thing in 10 years or five years or whatever? I can't, I'm trying to think of a great example of someone who's, who's cutting edge like that. I think a lot of times it is the, you know, the indie studios who have, you know, it's part of the vision of the game to do that. I think for the, yeah, I've only worked at the larger developers and you immediately run into these problems all the time of, crap, we forgot about such a large percent of the population had this, you know, fairly rare form of colorblindness, but multiplied by 50, 100 million people, it's a lot of people. Um, I have a friend who is going through MS who now has trouble with the, you know, the fine motor control of a mouse. And it's like, gosh, how do we make gaming more applicable to folks like that? Yeah. So, what kind of games yeah. do I play when I'm like 75 and don't have you know, even worse hand-eye coordination than I have today? Yeah. I don't want to give up gaming. I want to stay part of it. A charity I work with uh, over in the UK, and I'm sure there's uh, similar ones around the world, is one called Special Effect. And what they do is they customize gaming interfaces for people with disabilities. Um, I think all of us who play games know how important gaming is in our lives. And if you have you know, uh, an accident or if you, if you, you know, have a disease, which means that you can no longer interface with games in the same way, um, that can be horrible. Um, so they use technologies like um, eye tracking and eye gaze. So you can play a game by looking at the screen blinking. So if you're paralyzed from the neck down, you can still play games in a particular way. Now, uh, they, they do this all the way up to just customizing controllers for larger buttons, uh, different sensitivities. There's ones you can control with your mouth. Um, you know, you name it, you know, people are finding ways to interact uh, with these things. And what's actually fantastic is as technology improves and we have more stuff in virtual reality, more of these um, things are becoming more mainstream. If you've got a VR headset that can also track where you're looking, that then becomes even more immersive and it can render stuff in a better way. Um, so I think some of the exciting developments in hardware um, will then allow the bigger publishers to see the install base, uh, to be able to feel like actually it's a worthwhile investment to, uh, to develop for those sorts of things and put the APIs in to allow these different uh, computers and controllers to work with them. And like Greg's saying, like, I mean, to be honest with you, when we are in our 70s, we're still going to want to play games and that's going to represent a lot of dollars. And so there's going to be people out there who are going to try and find ways to keep us playing games. And um, I think that's, you know, hopefully uh, a bright future, I hope at least, um, where just, you know, at the moment there would be very little point developing for that audience size. 
uh, because you've got to try and find something that they would like and they're not necessarily the largest niche. Yeah, think about how yeah. long it took for games just generally in, uh, to start including colorblindness features. It's pretty much unheard of 10 years ago. You just didn't see it. And now every game I think I have has some sort of colorblind setting, especially those that where colors are a big part of it. So I think, I think that's just part of the progression, the outgrowth of the industry and totally agree with her, so I just said, okay, I think we have time for at least one more. I told Brian I'd give him a little extra time for, uh, for prep, so we'll, we'll try this one, we'll see how we do. What do you got, John? All right, first off, what's your name? I'm Teresa. Hi, Hi Teresa. Teresa. It's Rogue Tess, everybody. Hi, Rogue Tess. Hi. And what's your question? Um, I, I'm an educator, and gamification in education is a big thing. I think we can all just state as a given that virtual reality is a great thing for education. But gamification is, can be done very badly, like getting digital badges for finishing all your vocab homework or whatever. But um, Oregon Trail was a great example. Microsoft has purchased Minecraft, so there's Minecraft for EDU. How would you ideally like to see gamification in education so games remain cool, even though they're, not, even though they're co-opted by education? Um, and, and how do you see gamification in education as being useful? I think it's hugely engaging games. I think that they encourage uh, participation. Um, they, uh, anytime you can trick people into learning is fantastic. Um, sometimes there's a big stigma, especially in our cultures, I feel, where it's like, you know, to be studious is, you know, you're a nerd, man, you know, you want to be, you know, well, that's boring. And I think games help us forget those things. We're having fun. And when we're having fun and learning, that can be super retentive as well. So, um, yeah, I, I love it. I think Minecraft EDU has been around a long time, and it's used a lot in the, in the UK as well. And kids love it. You know, if you tell a kid that you get to play Minecraft for an hour at school, you know, they're thrilled. Um, yeah. But in that process, they might then have to, off the back of that, write a creative story about their adventure. And that helps them, you know, kind of come up and use their imagination. And, you know, if you just try to do that without having some mechanism, um, then that's less effective. Uh, it's easy, so, yeah. it's easy to forget too that Minecraft specifically and other and many many clones and like Minecraft games now, they have introduced kids to a creative way of playing, not just playing a scripted thing or being handed what they're supposed to do. They have to go make things, and I know that has an effect. It has an effect on my own son who started playing Minecraft back in '09. He was only nine years old. He's 17 now, and there's a difference in his spatial understanding what it means to construct something, build something. I won't give all the credit to Minecraft, but I think there's something there. Um, and I think that can be true for a lot of different genres, but that's the kind of stuff kids are exposed to. Now, those are the popular things kids are playing. And in a competitive way, if you look at MOBAs and RTSs, when they're playing other people, they're learning skills that can be applied in other places. They're not yeah, but those are real games. Yeah. What happens, in, especially in every like gamification, what we're seeing is people are not actually employing game designers to make those things. So you get simulations, like I'm gonna go out and pick pineapples or uh, pine cones I've seen, and that's gonna teach uh, somebody how uh, like the Native American population would have lived. That's a simulation. Games do something really special, and that's why you need real game designers making these things. And I, I'll just pitch my program, is that we really focus on creating an understanding of game design for all of our students. Because game design, good game design ideas can come from everybody. But I also think it's a very um, creative discipline. And so, Teresa, when you 
are seeing things that aren't really working that well, it's probably just hasn't been, it's just been put together not by a real game designer. I guess I'm, it's like you want a real writer writing a novel for you, right? You want a real game designer making games. And, and experience matters, you know? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were up here very early on, you two were talking about what makes a good game and what makes a bad game, you know, what makes you keep playing something for a while and what makes you put it down immediately. Uh, and I think exactly like you're saying, Corinne, like you, you need a designer that knows that to create the game, otherwise it's, it's just going to fall on its face. And I think also, even if you, you land on a game that is good, that it's not gonna be for everybody, because we all, uh, all of us up here probably don't play all of the exact same games. Yeah, Hearthstone sucks, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, you just suck at Hearthstone. <laughs> He's not wrong. Have you tried Gwent? He's probably right. Yeah, have you tried Gwent? Um, for education, I think there's also a really uh, a, a potential way of using uh, gamified things or even games to prime the interest of some of the kids where obviously if someone wants to learn about, I don't know, the American Revolution, they're not going to learn everything about it in a game, but they're going to have to go and read, you know, a few books to, to understand Blade, it. Wouldn't that be amazing? What? Good. You could play Mountain Blade and you could you know, and that's form your own little battalion. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. yeah. Um, but but so, so you, you can design a game to sort of make that <laughs> trick them into getting interested and then they're like, oh, you know, maybe that would be, the, the, they find the thing that they're into and that would be a much more engaging way of, of getting them to experience a bunch of things instead of telling them, go read this book and that book and that book and they don't want to do that. that. Too. They, they yeah, should no, read, too. <laughs> well, of course, but I mean, yeah. You're, you're almost hitting on games as, as, you're mentioning books, which is a resource used in education. Movies are used as a resource in education. I think games can be, too. I don't think you necessarily need to tailor-make a game for an educational experience. Go out and find the games that already exist that can be applied in that, in that field. Well, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego was a fantastic game. Oh, I thought you were just asking. Yeah. So, yes, where in the world? I was like, I still don't think we know any still. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily meant to just be an educational game. That's the problem I have with it. Every time I see something that's, this is for educational purposes, it's just like, this book is going to teach you how to be a good moral human being. Nobody wants to read that. Nobody wants to play those kinds of games. You have to just be telling a really compelling story and maybe all this other stuff will work too. I mean, I think that's why I and personally feel like World of Warcraft books. tells me compelling stories, especially when Terpster reinterprets them for us. <laughs> <laughs> we call oh, that reinterpstering. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank everybody for, for your questions. Uh, thank you, core guys, for running around with Mike. We really appreciate it. Um, but most of all, I want to thank our panel today. I think this was, this is what I wanted today. Now, whether anyone liked it or not, I don't know, but this is what I had in mind. I wanted to get to the deeper stuff. Somebody was, uh, somebody was just telling me up at lunch, uh, one of the things they like about our community is there's a realness to it. There's a, there's a quality that, that always comes out where we get it just down to brass tacks. We don't dance around the conversation and we are who we are. And so I think that we got a little bit of that here in regards to all of our favorite hobbies. Um, and it's just fun to do stuff with my sister, which I, you know, she's in Sweden. I don't get to do this stuff anymore. <laughs> but it's really fun to hang out with everybody up here. Please give a round of applause for our panel. We are, uh, let's see, schedule-wise, um, oh, everybody 45 who's, minutes. Sorry. Yeah, and we're going to, it's like a 45-minute break before All-Stars. Uh, who's up, who's in this up here? Uh, 
Yes, we actually, are yeah. scats. All right, we yeah. feel really good about it. Uh, between now and then, quick break, and just a note to producers who are part of our big group photo that's happening immediately after this. Okay. So don't stop people just yet. We'll be back. We just have to get this photo done so that we're cool. You know that Brian scene in uh, Avengers where they're like, we have a Hulk. You yeah. know, that's what we, me and Patrick were like, we have a jury. There you go. So yeah, we're yeah, not yeah. scared about this. Exactly. We're going to win this afraid. one. Jury's going to win it, and we're going to be there. So <laughs> we hope but, you guys are too. Yes. Um, so often, I'm, I'm so pleased to be welcomed here every time, and it's usually just me, and uh, uh, as far as the sound group goes, and uh, there is uh, someone who is, like Scott, local to this area, and you may not know him by name, but you will in a moment. If you uh, remember uh, Miss Pandaria, that, did you, did you roll a pan? Yes, yeah. literally rolled one. And you remember that moment? <laughs> you remember that moment when uh, you, you uh, got on the balloon and you found out the island wasn't necessarily an island? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> that was written along with, uh, he co-wrote uh, some of the jingles you've been enjoying for Hearthstone, like League of Explorers and things like that. Utah's very own Sam Carden. Sam. Sorry, man, but stand up. I heard, I heard his music uh, at uh, the Hearst Castle IMAX film and fell in love with it. Took me a year to find him because he has a terrible website. <laughs> Turns out I just was asking in the wrong places. If I had been asking my musician friends, they all knew him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's been an amazing, fun time, and he's, I think we've been keeping him pretty busy. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, you guys, thank you so much for joining us once again. We will see you back here shortly for Frog Pants All-Stars, The Game I Win. Yeah. <laughs>